Hello, and welcome to the Culture Force podcast. We're excited you're here. Now, we know that you're probably listening to this as you drive or work out or whatever you're doing or wherever you are, and you don't have the ability right now to write down every single thing you hear that our guests share, and some of it is world-changing. It's incredible. So we got your back. Kyle and I have created a free ebook that contains every single interview we've done, the highlights of those interviews. And so it's about 20 pages long. If you head over to cultureforce.team, T-E-A-M, and just put in your email address, we'll send you this ebook that has all the best bits of the podcast we've conducted this season. So head over there. Make sure you head over to iTunes and give us a like as well. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us whether you think Kyle did a better job or whether Chris did a better job. Uh, or if you think we just both did a good job, or maybe we both need work. But anyways, we love hearing from you. Head over there for that free ebook. It's a, a treasure trove of some of the best information that I've ever heard from some of these incredible people we've interviewed this season. So thanks for your time, and let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, could I please have your attention? It's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because own. they are hard. Try to, try to, try to find my way home. Welcome back, Culture Force. You're going to want to have that pause button ready to go because you may need to rewind a couple of times to write down some of the pearls of wisdom from our guest, Larry McIntosh. Larry's an experienced executive leader with a demonstrated history as VP of Advertising and Branding at Pepsi, Frito-Lay, CBS Storerunner, Foundstone, McAfee, and the CEO of ID Analytics. And now he's the founder and owner of Best Brands Consulting Group. But today, today we got to hear some incredible stories and awesome wisdom from my dear friend and mentor. So buckle up, tune in, and get that pen and paper ready as we all learn from Mr. Larry McIntosh. What an introduction. I'm so excited to have Larry here today. He's a personal friend of ours. And normally we record this podcast out at San Diego Christian College. Sometimes we do it by Zoom. Uh, Sometimes we do it by Skype. Yes. Uh, But we are literally sitting in Larry's living room this morning, sort of between the living room and the kitchen um, in beautiful San Diego. So I'm excited to be here. Uh, What an introduction. What a career you've had. But first, before we even get started, I just need to ask you one specific question about your time on the Andre Agassi Foundation as a fan of tennis, that's probably the coolest achievement you've had in my <laughs> mind so far. So. That was an awesome, awesome time. It was f- 15 years and we had already developed a relationship through Pepsi. I hired him to do a number of cool commercials for Pepsi Max, which was uh, uh, Pepsi One outside the United States. And he was an awesome guy. And I got to know Andre and his manager, Perry Rogers. And when they developed the idea of developing a a foundation that would help underprivileged children and build the educational system in Las Vegas, they came to Pepsi and me specifically, uh, do you want to be on the Founders Council? And I jumped at the chance. We had a great great time. And I've got 15 stories on that topic for another day. (laughs) We'll we'll do that. I read his biography. He was always a, uh, I was always a fan of his growing up. And uh, I read his biography and it was incredible. It's literally unlike any, 
athlete biography or any in general CEO biography you'd ever read. It's got this whole premise throughout it that he uses tennis to build a school, uses tennis to create a career, uses tennis to change his life. But at the end of sort of every chapter, he wrote, I hate tennis. He had a, he had a rough childhood. And, but here's a guy who had incredible innate skills at a very young age. They literally put a, stuck a racket in a five-year-old's hand and, they, and he started to hit balls and they went, this kid's got amazing talent. Wow. And it's going to be worth it if you invest in that. And his father beat tennis into him. His dad hustled him at the courts to try and make money off him. Um, he's married to Steffi Graf, one of my favorite stories in the book, not to belabor our point here uh, and what we're trying to do here, but um, one of my favorite stories in the book is he really started to fall in love with Steffi Graf on tour. And we might go, of course, they're on tour together. They see each other. They hang out in the locker rooms or back uh, between matches. And that wasn't it at all. His coach at the time, Brad Gilbert, would find out when Steffi was practicing and then he would always intentionally book the court next to staff, Steffi at the same time to practice. And of course, Steffi's German and, and he's American and they see each other all the time. And finally, one day, Steffi says to her coach, hey, isn't it weird that Andre always has a court next to us when we practice? Like it was coincidental in her mind. And she's like, yes, yeah, Steffi, because he likes you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I got to know uh, Andre in the Brooke Shields days. Oh, that's this going back is before then. Steph. So yeah, the, she's great. He's great. They are charitable, um, loving people who love their kids, love Vegas. Uh, he understands his background. He understands the uh, difficult times as he became a tennis star and, and goes and went through those struggles. But he's turned into be a valuable, genuine, authentic, charitable guy. Um, I, I'll just one quick story. We're at a Andre Agassi event with James Taylor for a limited group of people in Vegas to raise money. And at the end, we had taken a uh, taxi ride from our hotel on the Strip to this venue, which is probably 20 minutes outside the uh, Vegas Strip. And at the end of the concert, we had to get uh, a ride back. So I asked, you know, what's the best way to get a lift? Well, just call a cab and, and wait outside the front. Well, this Mercedes pulls up. And I mean, a top-notch Mercedes pulls up. Window rolls down. Andre says, get in. And so Susan and I got in the car in this beautiful brand new Mercedes and he whisked us back to the hotel alone. And it was just, he was just that kind of a class yeah, the guy. Book, the book uh, is full of stories similar to that. The guy is who he is. So love him and respect him. All right. You didn't tune in to hear tennis stories, although I could, I could have them all day. It's just my thing. Uh, and we're boring Kyle already, but that's fine. That's fine. Um, Larry. Can you tell us a story about how you got involved with Pepsi? We love these stories. They're so fascinating. How did you get your start? How did you set yourself up to sort of find a career through that? Um, did you major in Pepsi in college and, and Coke drinking? Oh, can I say that? That's wrong. Um, no Pepsi Coke drinking. word in this, yes. in this podcast. Cola, cola drinking, cola. <laughs> yeah, so this is an interesting story for me. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I hope for you too, but... Uh, um, I, I went to school when I, I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't want to be in business. Uh, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. And at my senior year, after completing an internship at University of Louisville Med School, I decided uh, that, no, I didn't want to be a doctor. And now what do I do? So uh, I got a, a network opportunity through my family to join an advertising agency. And that kicked off what ostensibly was a 40-year career in advertising and branding. Well, after 10 years in the advertising agency business, working on things like Pontiac Motor Division, which is no longer around, uh, Ford and Coors Beer, I got a call from a recruiter 
And that recruiter said, I've seen your background. They're looking for a director of advertising in New York. I was living in Chicago working for Footcone and Belding. I was one of the youngest officers at Footcone, a VP at the time, had a new child. We loved Chicago, had a lot of friends. And she said, I really think you ought to apply for the job. And I went, not interested. I don't want to go back to New York. By the way, that was my birthplace. I was born in New York, and um, but didn't want to go back to the East Coast. And she said, I really insist, would you just have lunch with me? And so I had lunch. And at that lunch, she talked me into going to New York for the interview. Funny story about that. If you don't mind, I'm just going to do one rabbit trail here. Um, I fly to New York the day I go into Chicago O'Hare, the largest airport in the United States. I pull into my car. I've got my interview suit on. I hear somebody yell over, hey, Larry. I turn over. It's the CEO of my advertising agency. Paul's in the exact same time. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, where are you going? And my head immediately spins and I go, if I lie, and I don't want to lie, but if I don't tell him where I'm going, he might be on that same flight. So, for example, I was flying to Denver every week uh, dealing with the Coors client, and he could be going to Denver too. So I said, well, I'm going to New York to see some family. Well, of course, I had my Navy balloon interview suit on, which is a little peculiar, but uh, that was the end of that. But I thought, what are the chances of seeing the CEO of your current company? Anyway, so we, we, I fly to New York, interview. It he's was a, not on the flight. He's not on the flight. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, two days of rigorous interview. You can just imagine PepsiCo was a very rigorous organization going through that process. And uh, the, the most important thing I have to say here, and, and really it speaks to how did I get involved in Pepsi, it was making a personal and uh, skill c- uh, connection with a really influential guy at Pepsi. So at the end of the two days, all my interviews went reasonably well. How many did you have? I probably had 10 to 12 interviews over that two-day period. And, uh, and I'll tell you about one that didn't go so well, but the one that did go well was the final interview. I met the head of creative services for Pepsi Worldwide. He'd been with the company since 1957. He was at CBS, he was a writer, and uh, became the head of creative services. He was the father of the choice of a new generation. Uh, Pepsi, the choice of a new generation. He created that line and joined the company in 1957. Now. PepsiCo had very austere offices, a lot of wood, uh, spent a lot of money customizing oriental rugs, paintings, the whole bit. And your escort, and the doors were electronic, so they could close them with the push of a button. So I walk in and they said, look, you're going to go in and meet Alan Potash. He's a legend in our company. You're going to get 15 minutes with him, get in and get out. I go in there, two hours later, I left his office. <laughs> and he leaned yeah I, I failed at that and he leaned in and he said i want you to take this job oh, and i took the job and we moved from chicago to new york and that started a 12-year career with pepsico uh running advertising for pepsi international and in, fa- in fact let me just tie back one of the interviews with was with a brand manager who went on to become the ceo of electronic arts and a very wealthy individual and created an uh, investment fund with Bono, funny enough. Um, but he, he, he came at me with a different angle that I wasn't prepared for. He said, Larry, let me get this straight. You have no soft drink experience. 
you have no international experience and you have no client experience. Why exactly are you here? <laughs> How <laughs> and, did you answer that? And yeah. I said, well, I, I disagree. I said, I, I think beverages in general speak to consumer behavior and consumer attitudes. I know how to tap into that. The international experience is something that I've, I've traveled all over the world personally. I don't think that's going to be a problem. And client side, I think you want an alternative perspective uh, to develop great advertising. And, and, and at the end of the day, they hired me. So... <laughs> That's incredible. I just want to point out that I too went through a rigorous interview uh, coming out to San Diego. I had gone through the first two days of interviewing and they went really well. And I went back to the hotel to my wife and said, this is a breeze. This is, you know, it looks like they're a little overwhelmed and shell shocked uh, with everything I'm bringing. It just, it's, everything's going great. Uh, I just feel like they don't really completely understand everything that I bring to the table and what what they're missing out on. And, and they seem to at least appreciate that they need someone in to kind of manage this marketing. I felt really good. They, we had the night off. My wife and I went to the zoo and I woke up in the morning to an email that said, hey, we've we've changed the way we're going to do our interviews moving forward. We have a, a guy coming in who's going to interview you from here on out. And it was Larry. And I remember looking at, like, I, I looked you up on LinkedIn and I looked at your, like, street cred and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this guy's going to see right through me. <laughs> and I recommended we they hire you. You did. I was very grateful for yeah. that. <laughs> so rigorous interview I get. Um, that's a great story. Uh, I think it's fascinating that you made a skilled personal connection. Sometimes we say, hey, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that feels like a maybe overly used cliche. Uh, but how did you go about making that skill? Did you like bump into in a restaurant? Were you proactive? Did you join a group? I mean, how did this happen? Well, so that first, I'm going to be uh, uh, full disclosure here. I want to be as authentic as possible. My father was in the advertising business and he knew an agency down in Detroit where I went to school in Michigan and uh, down in Detroit. And he got me my first job in an ad agency. And for those of you that know the business at the time, and I joined, you know, I went to college with slide rules. Okay. So this, this is how old I am. But the reality is, uh, at the time, they were schlepping key lines, hard art around the agency for approvals. This wasn't digital at the time. And I got a job in what they call the traffic department. This is where all young advertising executives started their, their jobs. And you had to work your way up through traffic. And I remember getting a job as, my, as the first account executive job. And the, and the chairman of the office said, stop by and congratulate Larry. He's in the, his desk is in the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it's just, that's how it worked back then. Where did you go to school in Michigan? Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Holland, Small yes. liberal arts school in Michigan, uh, MIAA conference. And uh, my wife, I met my wife, she was at Albion, another MIAA school. Holland, is that near like Frankenmuth and all the- That's near Saugatuck yeah. and, and uh, Grand Rapids on the West Coast. That's beautiful. Right there. by the lake and this beautiful Kid location. Rock wrote songs about that place, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I cool, love cool. hearing those stories about the old ad agencies. I, I remember, uh, I don't, do you ever meet Wally Bregman? By any chance, yeah. uh, he he sat on the board at One More Wave, but he was um, Le at Leo Burnett oh. in Chicago, you know, in the Chicago, and I think he went to their New York office. I can't remember if, uh, what year it was, but um, but I remember him telling me that you know their their battle rhythm every day back then, and it was hilarious. <laughs> oh man! So they would wake up, get into the office as early as possible, all morning long. 
they would uh, they would focus on all the ad copy, and then they'd go to lunch, and they'd probably go to lunch with a couple of clients, and they and then have a couple of cocktails, right? Then they'd get back, check in with their secretaries, hold all calls, afternoon siesta, <laughs> <laughs> and then around yeah. two thirty three, they'd look at all the ad copy again, da da da, and then they'd go to dinner. Well, you know, the and series- then it was like. And, and, and like Monday through Thursday, almost, they wouldn't even, it was like you were in the office the whole time. And then finally Friday you, was the day you would go home and spend time with the family. You know, the, <laughs> like, uh, the miniseries Mad Men? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. My father was a madman. He worked in the agency business on Madison Avenue in the 60s. And so, uh, you know, he exper- he was that guy. Wait, yeah. I just got that. I just got that. Mad Men, Madison Avenue Men. Ah, yeah. oh, I'm a genius. Yeah, I just don't well, How are me. you in marketing? Gosh. You know what's funny? I worked, I got my MBA at the University of Windsor in Ontario. My wife's Canadian and we were living up there at the time. Just, and that's right across from Detroit. And so we did a ton of stuff for the auto industry. And it was my first insight into, you look at these large corporations and maybe Pepsi wasn't quite the same way but I suspect it might've been because um, they all felt like they were. And you look at them and you think, man, these guys have it together. They're spending so much money. They're so sharp. And I remember thinking all the time, these guys are flying by the seat of their pants. Everything's coming in late. The you know, the July 4th promotion's coming in on July 3rd. It just feels like, wow, I would've thought these guys would've had it more, uh, more on top of things as you go. They were a little loose. Yes. <laughs> but they had guts. Maybe yeah. it was the cocktails. I don't know. So Larry, as you're, so let's go back a little bit. As you're going into Pepsi, what what did you have to do personally to kind of involve yourself, get yourself into that vibe, into that culture, into that environment? I think there are a few things that work to my advantage. Um, if I'm if I reflect back on it, one is I had a lot of the innate skills given to me by blood. So my grandfather was in the advertising business. He was the producer of the Bob Hope Show and the Craft Music Hall. He was one of the first radio announcers at NBC Radio in New York for Pan Am, and he did his own interviews. He had a radio voice, and he was just a dynamic guy. Uh, my father was an advertising guy. Worked for Darcy, worked for Y&R uh, in the 50s and 60s. And so when it came around to me uh, getting a, you know, setting a career choice, I didn't know it at the time, but that innate quality and those skills that you need innately were already there. The second thing I was, you know, I had spent 10 years in the advertising business and I really did uh, pretty well. And I knew that business and I knew how to tap into consumer uh, sentiments and uh, understanding to be more provocative and more thoughtful. And frankly, I had decent communication skills. And I think Alan, uh, who was a, a really important influencer in my life, I mean, he really was my second father um, in that business because he he just he was a man's man. He flew uh, Piper Cubs, he flew airplanes, he had franchises in the Cayman Islands, he had his own home, he taught me how to dive. Um, you know, we just hit it off on so, on sports, on um, you know just being gutsy and taking no prisoners and having some conviction for big ideas and moving forward, regardless of what others said. Uh, He just was, he was a really interesting, influential leader. But not only did, it wasn't just a take relationship where I was taking advice and, and getting a lot of feedback from him. He also gave me credibility within the organization because he was so powerful in that company. The CEOs revered him. He had, a, he had an insight and an ability to see a good idea from a bad idea. 
execution was really critically important. Seeing a, a commercial idea on a storyboard is one thing. Being able to have the presence of mind and understand how is that idea that's on a piece of paper going to come to life is a totally different skill. And not everybody has that skill. You, you and I could have 10 ideas on a storyboard put in front of us, and we might pick three different ideas each. It's the ability to pick the gem out of that group and go, when that gets produced in film, with actors, with music, with pictures, with you know interaction, it's going to be a totally different ballgame. Remember, we were spending, you know, at that time, um, you know, $100 million a year on, on advertising. So it was a lot of risk. What, what year was that, roughly? So I was at Pepsi from 1988 to 96 with Pepsi, and then I uh, went down to Frito-Lay, same corporation, to run advertising uh, worldwide for Frito-Lay from 96 to 99. So it's safe to say, if you were still in charge at Pepsi, the Kylie Jenner fiasco wouldn't have happened. <laughs> Well, we had our own, you know, we had our own issues. Remember, I, the first week on the job, Madonna launched her tour. Um, and it was, uh, oh gosh, it was um, Prayer was the, uh, was the- Living on a Prayer. No, that was a that's Bon Jovi. No, it was, it was Madonna's Like a Prayer or something. It was that type of a title. And, um, and she released her music video the first week I was on the job. It was- a was it provocative burning, interaction burning in, a church, yeah, yeah. in a church with an African-American oh, priest. Right. And the Catholic Church boycotted Pepsi that week. Because Madonna was a spokesperson. Madonna was a spokesperson for Pepsi at the time. What did you do? Well, I remember. Crisis I was not management 101. Uh, right. Here we go. It was baptism by fire. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and I remember the head of marketing for Pepsi International ran into my office and said, isn't this great? And I went, no, <laughs> this is not great. Not all PR is good PR. And so I was pretty vocal about the fact that we needed to shut down the advertising program immediately. Uh, so we did. We, we were, you know, shut down the schedule. And I mean, having the Catholic Church boycott Pepsi was not a good thing. Worldwide. What, so yeah, that worldwide. Be, real quick, because I think this is so fascinating for us all. What, it, what are you thinking on those mornings getting ready for work? That was, well, okay. so Of that, that week. Yeah, well, I, I'm just going to give you an overall answer to that question sure. because every day at Pepsi was incredibly pressure, pressure felt every day because there, there wasn't a day that I don't remember being on the hot seat or a spot and you have to be prepared for that. When we did Super, we did Super Bowl commercials at a million dollars a pop. Now, they're a lot more expensive today than they were back in 1995. But, we would stay up all night long. We would wait for USA Today to come out with their ad poll for the next morning and see where Pepsi's rankings were in that top 10 ad poll. And it was a make or break deal. You know, you really needed to be in that top five, uh, top eight slots in order to retain your when position. When would you guys start planning for that? Would be, that be like in June or, or yeah, even June, earlier? Yeah, June or July for, for, you know, October, November production, and then December, January, February launch, you know, that kind of thing. All right, since we're on this topic, I was going to save it, but so you brought up Madonna, but you also were there when Michael Jackson had his, was it his hair caught on fire? No, or I was other? not there for that, but, my, but Alan Potash had that responsibility. He was on set when that occurred. No, I had the child molestation problem. And I remember... To be clear, Larry didn't have the child <laughs> yes. molestation problem. Michael Jackson had the problem. He was accused of, of molesting 
young boys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that that's was, why that was on brand. my watch. And, and that's why he's your you brand were film, ambassador. Were you filming something? We were sponsoring his Dangerous tour, and we were in Mexico City with 100,000 people coming to see Michael Jackson when he said, I'm going to fly back to L.A. and answer these charges. And he left Pepsi holding the bag. Uh, and we had to cancel that, that evening's uh, concert. It was, a, it was a really tough time. Uh, on, a, on a better note, uh, you were also there uh, and you hired Cindy Crawford. Yeah. And if I remember, Cindy Crawford mentioned you, not by name, but in an article once, as one of the only executives that ever treated her with complete and total respect, right? I get that right? Yes, uh, the details are a, li- a bit provocative, maybe not appropriate for this <laughs> podcast, but I, I actually, uh, it turned out to be a story where I I thought I would be placed in a compromising position and I said to the to her manager that that was not acceptable and that she needed to do something else. Well, that came out in an interview with a very popular magazine at the time. And I didn't get that magazine. And I walked into a very important PR meeting at in Purchase New York with PepsiCo executives. And the head of PR, who happened to be a female, said, uh, Larry, your story is, is on uh, the, the floor today. W- what happened there? And it turned out, you know, it turned out to be one of those stories that, thank goodness I did what I did and I said what I said because it was the right thing to do. And it said I had some standards and I had some boundaries. Uh, the guys were like, you schmuck, why'd you say that? The women were like, well, that was a good thing to say. And that, that was the right thing to do. But it was, uh, it was a wake-up call to say, do the right thing wherever you are. I don't care where you are. You know, Kyle, it's interesting that we've talked to Larry now. We talked to Jeff the other day from Burger King, and they both sit here at the highest levels of the game and said integrity and character and being honest is what has helped them succeed so much. And I think so much and so often we feel like, oh, I, I better put on a fake face. The, they'll figure me out soon enough. And so I'm going to maybe misrepresent who I am or not be completely truthful to and genuine in my personality as I move forward. And uh, it, people see right through it. And, and I'll add that I know that story and I know that you were international. Uh, there weren't a lot of people around. So, I mean, he essentially did the right thing when no one was watching. Raw you know? good. Always uh, good. Navy Always SEALs good. are a lot like that. Am I right? We try to be. Uh, they are. They definitely are. I, I will say I tried to be. <laughs> I wasn't always I wasn't always successful, but I tried to be. And uh, but yeah, that that culture uh, around the SEAL community um, is very, very uh, ingrained in each and every individual uh, from the beginning uh, to the end of their career, like do the right thing when no one's watching. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about brands, but we also need to talk about our own brand. What do you stand for? What do you, what's your legacy? What do you want to be seen as? If people were to select a couple words to describe who you are, what th- would those words be? I personally like the words integrity and excellence, always striving for excellence and always being high integrity. And uh, I think that everybody needs to think about what's their own personal brand and what words, not in a long sentence, but in a, in a few short words or phrases, what is it that describes you and, and guides you uh, for your, through your career and through your family life and personal life and, and everything you do? Yeah. 
That's right. So I would like to um, segue a little bit into that. So while you're there, um, you know, you've done, you're doing multiple events. You just mentioned the event where, you, you know, 100,000 people, you got to cancel it. What's, what's maybe an event that you were there or somewhere else that uh, you were part of that you created that really impacted the culture of the department, of the team, of the entire organization, um, anything? Yeah. So, so I'm going to call this, you know, the title of this section is really called Big Ideas. Big ideas can mobilize people and energize a culture. The story I've got is you've got to go back to 1995. Outside the United States, Coca-Cola had a dominant share of the cola market. And I stood back as the director of advertising and branding for Pepsi outside the U.S. I looked back and I said, wait a minute, how is it that Pepsi has such a weak identity presence in these countries? And we shipped out, and you remember the disposable cameras those days? Okay, right, you wind. We shipped out hundreds of those cameras to our entire organization outside the U.S. And we said, photograph every single Coke truck, building, sign, cooler, package, bottle, everything, and Pepsi, Coke and Pepsi, send the cameras back. We developed that film. We had 2,000 photographs. We did boards. Here's Coke. Here's Pepsi. What did you see? Well, it was very obvious. Coke had this beautiful red dominance, the wave, uh, through everything they had. I don't care whether it was a truck, a sign, a billboard, a cooler. It was all the same. Pepsi, in contrast, had white, blue, red, uh, script letter, block letter. Um, We were all over the place. No unifying identity. So it was very obvious to me that we had under-leveraged the millions of dollars of identity system in the marketplace. We had under-leveraged that with poor graphical uh, expression. So we, what I did was I created new packaging, new signage, new identity around blue. So if Coke's red, what are we going to be? And we picked blue, which was refreshing, more contemporary, <clears throat> more modern. Excuse me. Color of trust. Color of trust. It was a, it was a color of stability. And I presented that to my boss at the time, Alan Potash. And he stood up and said, over my dead body, are we doing this? And I said, I said. It's so easy to sit right here. Why, why, why? Right? He didn't want to take the risk. And I said, do you mind if I present this to the president of the company? And he said, yeah, go do what you want to do, but I'm not going to be with you. I said, that sounds good to me. <laughs> I presented the idea of changing Pepsi to blue to Chris Sinclair, who was the CEO at the time. He stood up and said, I'm so bullish on this idea. I want to go and I want to go now. I want you to launch it at the Hong Kong senior management meeting, create a video, present it. We presented it in Hong Kong, standing ovation. All the leaders, country managers stood up and said, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And we then we developed an identity system with a book called the Look Book. All the marketing people are like, that's a joke. Why'd you spend any money and time doing that? CEO personally wrote me a letter. This is awesome. Because it told the country managers, here's how you do this at the truck level, the signage level. Here's how to take that identity and start to convert it. It changed Pepsi overnight. Wait, are you saying you're the guy that turned Pepsi, the Pepsi can blue? Yep. 
I'm here today live with, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> with Kyle and Chris <laughs> for the first time. <laughs> I've told everybody about this story, uh, dude. <laughs> but it's cool. But it's an important, it's a milestone career moment for me where I said, it's so important to do it. I'm willing to take a career risk and, and present it. But it mobilized the company. Yeah. It just energized the company. So that's what I was going to pull on. So I'm assuming, right, everyone pretty much was on board right overnight, huh? I didn't get any, any no votes wow. on this. It was all upvotes. Now, funny enough. How about that energy shift? Well, we presented this whole launch to a thousand media in Gatwick Airport. We painted the Concord blue <laughs> and brought it into the airport. And I brought in Cindy Crawford. I brought in Andre Agassi. I brought in all the celebrities and we presented all the new advertising. Well, the press wasn't as enamored by this idea sure. because they were expected a new product. Where's the new product launch, new taste formula? Where's all the stuff behind the can? Right. It was about a can graphic, right? And right. about a new, new look and feel. And they were not as enamored. Well, cut to today. You can't envision Pepsi not being blue. Right, right. You can't even see, did you, you, did you guys get hammered at all in the media for that oh, a yeah. little bit? Oh, yeah. They were yeah. not. They were not good to us. And, you know, and the British press are not good <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Anyways, so. yeah. You know, the as, as someone who, who has launched and rebranded things, you know, I'm working with a college right now and we rebranded everything. You know, I went through their stuff. It was exactly like you said, whether you're a big corporation or a small college, these guys have like 12 different logos they were using for everything. And it's a quick search on Google. And I was like, nobody knows who you are. It's so confusing. We're all over the board. And so we changed it. But it's hard because everyone sort of has this attachment. And when you change something like that, there's literally no emotional connection yet with it. So the only thing that can happen is either energized because you like change or you're, you're frustrated because you didn't want to see anything change at all. Uh, and so that is probably why so many organizations find it so hard to change that fear factor of who they're going to upset. What if it's the wrong deal? It's just safer to stay here. Right. So we do the other podcast. What if someone says, oh my gosh, I can't stand that guy's voice. He talks too fast. Or these guys don't know what they're doing. I have, a, I have a, written a self-published book and I have 20 or 30 reviews and all five star, but the only one who actually wrote anything is that this guy's uh, an idiot, you know? And it was like, <laughs> it's the only one that's out there, but of course the only one I focus on, right? It's, uh, um, there, how but, did but, you but Chris, just to add one point to that, I think it's exactly what you described. It's, it's risk reward equation, but it's also, to, for me, it was the power of a big idea. And when the idea was strong enough and obvious enough, it took very little selling. Because people looked at it and went, oh my gosh, yes, we have to do this. I had country managers who were very powerful in their own country uh, who were responsible for all of the business in that country stand up and go, we have to do this. That's cool. So you had complete buy-in. I had complete buy-in because Kyle, the idea was strong. It's interesting that Larry, Larry, maybe he set this up, but I'm going to point it out and give you real credit for this, but you know, you just share big ideas, mobilize and organize and energize the culture. You forced through, even though someone didn't like what you had to say, you said, can I still present it? And you brought it forward. Earlier in our conversation, you said, have conviction, move forward, regardless of what others say. And so that was just a great demonstration of exactly what you're sharing. It's easy to say it's tougher to actually deliver on it, right? I mean, everybody wants to be liked Everybody wants their ideas to be universally accepted. It's not that easy, though. Uh, and you have to take some risk. And you have to be 
thoughtful about those decisions that you make and have some conviction that they're the right thing to do. You may not always be right, but you have to really have conviction. If you don't have conviction for your own ideas and your own motivations, who is? You know, you've got to have your own ideas and your own thoughts. And you have to be aware that some people aren't going to like it. Right. you got to make peace with it. We always had a saying in the advertising business, if you have advertising that is generally liked, I would argue that was bad advertising. You want advertising that either people love or hate because yeah. it created some emotional co- connection and not everybody feels the same way. Gosh, we know that today, right? Not everybody thinks the same way about things, uh, but that's okay. Agassi, right? Good press, bad press, at least they're talking about me. Right, and he was very controversial, very provocative. Um, we, it's, it's funny, uh, you know, we're nearing the 4th of July and um, the charity that I work with, One More Wave, we launched a um, just an ad for one of our apparel lines the other day. And in the ad, I'm holding an AR. Well, it's COVID right now. I, we didn't think anything of it. Um, you know, that picture is probably four years old now. And uh, it's hilarious. It's not hilarious, but it is interesting that there is there's no middle ground on that. It's either people love that because we're, we're, we're a charity that focuses on helping veterans, right? People either absolutely love that photo or, man, we just lost some donors and they hate that photo. <laughs> I said, for the record, I, I liked that photo when I saw it. It was out this week. Um, all right, Larry, what do you think? We talked about a lot of stuff. But what do you think is the most impactful thing you did to impact any culture that you've been a part of? And you've been a part of a lot of cultures. Well, I, th- I think um, one of the things that uh, I'll, just, I'll just segue into my second career as an executive at ID Analytics, um, and let me just set that context first, if I can. Um, when I was in the food category, I was in Dallas running advertising, promotion, packaging for Frito-Lay worldwide putting 80,000 trucks on the street every single day with a bunch of potato chips. And I realized that the food category was growing at 3%. This is 1998. The internet was just starting. And I realized the food category was growing at 3% a year, not very robust. And the internet was starting to emerge as the force. And I thought, I'm a key marketer. I want to be part of that action. I got a call to, to interview for a job with a CBS.com called Store Runner. Now, CBS, if you remember back then, 1998, they had cash and they wanted to get part of this. They wanted to get into this dot-com thing and they invested in Market Watch, Sportsline, uh, Store Runner. Uh, they were in auto parts. They were in a bunch of different categories at the time and wanted to see how they could make, make some money and play into this new dot-com world. Well, I did too. And I got the job and uh, was one of the two executives hired to start this shopping portal, which was the pre-emergent company to Amazon, by the way. It was designed to be, you search for a a blue shirt on storerunner.com and up came Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, Macy's, and you could go to a brick and mortar store because it tied in the inventory, or you could go uh, on shop online. Of course, brick and mortar had no clue how to deal with this, right? Well, it seemed like a pretty good deal. CBS put in $100 million, $20 million in cash, $80 million in advertising equity, came out to the West Coast to build this thing. 
Two and a half years later, failed. We had no revenue model. We had brick and mortar stores. We went to Nordstrom and say, hey, we can give you eyeballs. We can give you clicks. We can tell you exactly who's interested in what. And they said, well, no, we're going to keep buying newspaper ads. Nobody had any idea what that nope, meant. Nope, it's too early. So it failed. So here I am looking up at the sky saying, now what do I do? And I don't want to leave. I mean, I'm a big corporate guy running these different businesses. I'm now in a dot-com, small startup, no job. I've moved my family to San Diego. What am I going to do? And I said, well, I'm not going to move my family again. We love it here in San Diego. We're not going to do that. My kids are going to go through the same school system. We're not going to jack them around. And I'm going to find work. I got a call 30 days later. Hey, would you join uh, a company called HNC Software? So I went from selling triangular corn chips with barbecue seasoning to computer chips. <laughs> uh, went to selling high-powered analytical software in the credit score and the fraud space. I knew every third word. I, I had no clue what they were saying, but they wanted me to pivot and adjust and learn. And I pivoted. We sold that company to FICO. I went to McAfee as uh, head of marketing for McAfee, sold that company. I'm sorry, Foundstone. Foundstone in 2004, we sold that company to McAfee, ended up running marketing for McAfee. And then I got a call to join a company called ID Analytics. Small startup in the identity fraud space. First company to develop an identity score. Most people know that you have a credit score. Did you know you also have an identity score that banks and wireless companies pull on you to find out, are you who you say you are? Well, ID Analytics was the company that, that developed that. We built that company over a 10-year period of time. We sold that company to LifeLock. LifeLock was private in the identity theft space. They needed technology to go public. We then went public in October. I took over as CEO of the company. The biggest thing I'm coming back now, full circle to your question, which is I had to protect the culture that was unique and compelling for ID Analytics on behalf of all the employees from a culture that was a little more toxic, not quite as, it didn't quite have the reputation that ID Analytics had. And so I think that to answer that question, I worked really hard to both protect the culture that we had spent so much time creating around scientific prowess, proven expertise, uh, unique data, protect that culture and insulate the employees from the chaos that was occurring through the acquisition. And I, I saw that as my full-time job and I did that. So we're gonna obviously pull on that. So then, so then what was your, what, how? How did you do that? What was your main focus on the day-to-day? Well, I think that obviously I looked for ways to integrate ID analytics into the LifeLock culture. So where are there opportunities for me to do that without negatively affecting the culture of ID analytics? So I stepped back and said, what does LifeLock really need? How can I help them achieve what they wanted to achieve without destroying our culture? And then turning the other way, how do I protect the integrity of the employee base and ensure that they felt safe and they felt like they could continue to do their great work in a protected environment. So it was understanding that it's about solving the broader problem. LifeLock just spent a lot of money buying the company. 
How do you give them what they need? At the same time, protect the culture that made us unique. So what you're saying is you protected, when you say protect the culture, you protected the, the team that was in place that, that was responsible for this culture overall. But so many companies sell and you know the ownership and leadership get all this money for the sale, but the average guy is still in his job wondering if he gets to stay. And now he works for another company and he, maybe he or she is a little terrified that it's not gonna be the same. Um, why did that matter so much to you? What was the benefit? Because we spend so much money attracting really great talent, right? You put all this money into recruiting the finest scientists in the country who are, who are not only technically capable and have an amazing uh, educational uh, CV, but they also are creative. They solve problems in unique ways. We had the largest data set of, of identity information in the country on 330 million people. We had all of your identity information. Well, so did other companies. All the credit bureaus have that information. The reality is it took not just strong science and computer science and data analytics people, but it took creati creativity just to how do we solve this problem? How do we give banks and wireless companies insight into the, into the identity risk of an individual when they're applying for credit, for example, how do we get unique insight to that company that nobody else can do it? It's creativity. It's how do you solve that problem in unique ways? So we spent all this time and energy acquiring talent that could do that in a unique way, solving unique and tough problems in unique ways. The last thing I want to do is watch them go out of the out of the office. So our attrition post acquisition was very low, very low, because the the scientists said, "No, I can continue to do what I've been doing with little impact on my on my life," and that was that was an important job for me to 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 do. Larry, we usually ask this at the beginning, but we're we're well into this podcast already, and I want to ask you because it it seems like the really appropriate time to ask. Uh, Colin and I have this thought that leadership is overrated. The only game worth winning is culture because culture creates a great leadership team within the organization. And then it can help your company flourish, grow, even uh, become twice as well twice as well off financially. But if that's the case, why do we spend so much time focusing on leadership? And why are we so bad at it? Because we do that. I think you guys are absolutely nailing the core topic. There are plenty of examples of strong leaders that fail in business because they didn't bring anybody along. Right. Right. They are strong leaders in and of themselves, but they forgot one thing. Where is your team? How do I, how do I build and create a, a compelling team? How do I reward them? How do I deliver servant leadership that says, I'm willing to do whatever I'm asking you to do and I'm gonna demonstrate it. I was always the last person that left the office. Now I'm a, I'm a workaholic by nature, um, but I, I could not ask my employees to dedicate, dedicate more than eight hours a day if I'm not willing to do it. And this, that's just one example of how did I create a culture of loyalty when I resigned and stepped down as the CEO, I had a standing ovation from my employees for literally 15 minutes. Wow. It's because those employees valued the relationship that I had with them and they knew that I was gonna be authentic, truthful, 
I was going to work harder than they would work, and that anything that I asked them to do, I'd be willing to do myself. So was I the smartest guy in the bunch? No. Did I know more about credit risk or fraud risk than anybody else in the company? No. Did I know the banking business or the wireless business better than my clients? No. But I assembled a leadership team that was, they were willing to work beyond the limits to deliver excellence. And so for me, I think you're spot on. It's, it is about leadership and knowing where you're going. What's the compass bearing? What's the strategic direction of the company? Why, how can you compel people to see that, act on it as a successful strategy? But it's even more important that you bring people along. Kyle, we've asked this question on every single podcast, and maybe I'm biased because Larry's a marketing guy, but that that is absolutely the best answer we've gotten. We've gotten good answers, but that is straight up the most powerful, concise, and clear answer we've gotten when we've asked that you question. Know, you know what I love so much about it, too, is when, as he's describing himself, his descriptions, those descriptive words are not oh, I had, I had uh, foresight. It's not, oh, I had creativity, even though he's a marketer. It's not, um, I had this strategic plan, et cetera, et cetera. It would, the descriptions were hardworking. I was listening. I was engaged with my team. I cared about my team and several others. I mean, you know, it's- I mean, you've shared- you, you said that a lot. You, you said that to me over and over again. That's how you became successful. You did exactly <laughs> yeah, the same thing. Because I was the dumbest guy in the room, that's for sure. <laughs> but you shared. <laughs> and I was definitely not the I fastest. Doubt that. <laughs> yeah. I doubt that. I we, was definitely not the we fastest. We learned the other day from one of our, our friends on the, I don't know if it was Dan or if it was Brent, but it was. It, you didn't have to be the fastest seal. They're not looking for that. They're looking for you. They'll outswim you. They'll, out, uh, they'll outlast you. You've shared before, like in training uh, during BUDS or whatever, when you carry the boats, you know, you've seen guys that uh, are leader are leaders, but their teams don't win. And when you put another guy on the same team, they tend to kind of bring the team up, and then they actually start winning the races and, and the things that you guys do. So it isn't swap out the leader. Yeah. yeah. So it, it kind of exactly what you're saying is that you know most times when you become a leader, you focus on yourself, and really that leader should be learning to focus on others, which is what right. you've shared with me many times. I spent a lot of time talking to employees, walking the halls, not hiding in an office, not hiding behind a desk. Uh, I didn't have any more important job to do than to connect with my employees and ensure that everybody had what they needed to do their job. It wasn't about micromanagement or control. It was about, do you have everything in your, that you need to successfully perform your job? And, um, and let that, and that, and I listened. Gosh, I mean, this is, I mean, not to, not to be a dead horse here, but we've talked to some really, really successful people on this podcast, and they all say the same thing. Get out of the office, get into the trenches. Get out of the office, get into the trenches. Start talking to your people. Start getting to know your people. This is incredible, Larry. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. So what was it? Where? We're, I think I'm we're still at, I'm still consuming that last answer is so good. Well, I think we're at our we're at our personal <laughs> hacks questions. No, 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 we've yeah. got we've got many we've got so many others. Mm -hmm. We've got so many others. <laughs> the, um, Larry, well, let's take a break here and do something fun. What's the best piece of uh, advertising advice you can give the average Joe? Let me start off. I thought of this while we were talking, and it was a lesson I learned. I don't know when, uh, how long ago it was, but. It was maybe in college and, and someone said, hey, if you put a, 
this seems very uh, apropos in our discussion. If you put a, a Pepsi machine in a lobby and it sells 200 cans a day, how many cans of cola will you sell if you put a Coke machine right next to it? And of course, the average answer, everyone says, well, you probably sell 100 cans of Pepsi and 100 cans of Coke. And he said, would you be surprised to learn that you'd actually sell 400 cans? And so, of course, we're fascinated. And it came down to the fact that when you have just one machine in the lobby, the decision is, the consumer decision is, do I want a cola or do I not want a cola? But when you put a Coke and a Pepsi machine in the lobby, the decision becomes, do I want a Coke or do I want a Pepsi? not do I want to drink. And so the numbers go up. Yep. And I thought, well, that's fascinating how our brains work and how that sort of were, were silently manipulated by those tricky little things that happen. Um, and consumer uh, advertising really understands this. And one, be really aware about how you're, you're in a store and how you're being sort of, I, don't, I hate the word manipulated, but maybe being sold to. Um, but I guess that was, that was a, a, a really interesting lesson. Hey, how will the consumer behave if I do it this way. I think there's one topic that comes to mind almost immediately, and it, and it speaks to the culture that we're living in and working in today. Um, I believe we are moving, and this is not particularly profound, but we're moving into a soundbite culture where younger people don't go deep on topics. They spend text messages to, you know, they use text to communicate and convey thoughts. Uh, they develop a point of view and opinion on a very short text message. Uh, they don't go deep. If you notice, you know, even talking to my kids, uh, it's, they're short bites. They're very rarely are they long, in-depth, uh, detailed, well-researched topics. And so now when we translate to advertising, if you look at most of the advertising today, it's not particularly creative, number one. Number two, they're trying to Jam, jam 10 pounds of potatoes in a five pound bag. They're telling the viewer too much in a short period of time because some bean counter or lawyer is saying, you gotta shove this idea in and shove this message in. And so my argument is people are literally developing and spending money on ineffective advertising that isn't doing anything to resonate with the population oh, man, today. preach it, preach it. It's why Apple was so successful. If you look at the products, and I don't, I don't want to get in debate whether you're Apple or whatever, but the, genuinely, you know, what I've often heard is the Microsoft products are functionally more robust for you to use and manipulate and tweak and the, than the Apple products. But the Apple product actually because it just has a picture of the product on the box, which Steve Jobs fought tooth and nail to make sure that was the only thing that happened. Perception is that it's easier to use because it's not cluttered with all this stuff. Well, and their advertising had essentially one word, think differently, or two words, you know, think differently. That was the message. Um, you know, they were very, very singular in focus and pure in execution. And people remember that. You show that singular message at least three times and people start to remember it. And I think it's even more uh, particularly important now to do it with the culture that we've got yeah. and, the, and the children that we have raised. And especially with this chaos, it's even more, our brains are drawn to clarity. If your message is concise and clear and not cluttered, uh, even with graphics, uh, our brains are drawn to it because we believe it's it's the easiest route. It's the best route. Most people aren't trying to figure out what the best thing is. They want you to just tell them what the best thing is so they can go do it. So, all right, oh, this is fun. Maybe we'll have more of that here at the end. 
All right. So, Larry, one thing we like to do at the end is, you know, we found that a lot of our listeners and myself, honestly, maybe this is just for me. I don't know if our listeners uh, like it as much as I do. But what? Uh, we didn't ask, well, let's put the, the question in right now because I always feel like we should do this before the hacks. Okay. Um, is that, hey, what's one thing we didn't ask you? So, Larry, we've been talking. You've kind of gotten a great sense of, you know, our podcast. You've gotten a great sense of our audience and what we're always trying to drive home. What is something that maybe we haven't asked or discussed that you think would be really relevant to uh, the discussion today or for our audience? Or maybe it's just relevant for Chris and I. (laughs) That's good, too. too. Well, I I think everybody thinks about careers in linear ways and thinks that people... I'll just say it like me, you know, had this smooth sailing, easygoing, you know, successful connection of career points. The reality is that's not how life works. There is no career path. Uh, How would a guy who's grown up in consumer packaged goods and, you know, sold, you know, corn chips move into a technology career with high powered analytical software? Not, I'm not talking about just selling a, a phone. I'm talking about selling fraud scores and, and very difficult things to largest banks. It's because I had to adapt. I had to shift and pivot. And you have to be willing um, to, to move in different directions depending on how life sends things your way. And so not everything worked according to plan. Not I didn't... I look back and I go, how did that possibly occur? Well, there's a higher being that influences that plan for sure. Uh, But I also believe the executive, and if you're listening, you've got to be prepared to take the bumps with the grinds, with the, the ups and the downs. And you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and being as optimistic and confident as possible. But you're not going to, don't, don't sit back and go, I want a linear career path that goes from step one, two, three, all the way through to, to 500. That's just, it's not going to work that way. And you, you better be prepared to adapt and shift. Mm, I love it. You know, I think of, uh, remember that time I took you to the Honor Foundation and I had you speak for a couple of moments? Well, for all of my uh, brothers and sisters that are transitioning out of the military, this one is especially relevant for you guys because we listen to Larry and he talks about, you know, 10, 11, 12 interviews before he got that position. Well, sometimes for our transitioning guys and gals, they think, hey, I just, I, I just spent 20, 30 years in the military. I shouldn't have to do 20 interviews to get a position. <laughs> Hello, uh, Larry had to. And you know, what's funny is I always tell, I always remind him like, hey, it's 11 interviews. No offense, this, I'm, I'm not taking anything away from you, Larry, but it's 11 or 12 interviews over two days. Hey, you know how long you have to interview to become a Navy SEAL? <laughs> it's right. three years. <laughs> right, right. Just it's, deal with the it's relatively of days. harmless. Right. I mean, you should be able to pull that off. But but your but point so good. your point is right. It's not automatic. Right. And just because you're ready to take a job doesn't mean your employer's ready to take you. So uh, it, it it's it's rigorous hard work, and you have to stay at it. Hey, I don't mean to be obnoxious about this, Kyle, but I mean here's. Uh, 
another great executive that told us you have to pivot, you have to shift, you have to adapt. Jeff Campbell told us the exact same thing the other day. He was in marketing and they said, hey, if you want to go run the company, you got to go run a franchise. And so he walked completely away from, you know, his degree and what he'd been successful in. And maybe if you're out there listening, what you need to do is make a shift. Maybe you've been afraid to make a shift uh, and maybe it's time to look at how you can adapt and what you can do to pivot and how this might help escalate and grow your career. Because uh, we're talking to these guys that are all genuine and honest, um, retired, they've got nothing to lose. They're not trying to shill or shift or sell you anything. They're just giving you good advice. And uh, that's advice everyone should take on my side. In the executive world, obviously, if you um, leave the military, that's a complete life shift as well, and that you're required to sort of do something else afterwards. Quite but often. I, I, but I, I'm energized by seeing these uh, very successful uh, military uh, executives try to shift and pivot, and their willingness to learn new skills and get out in the marketplace and hit the pavement and interview because they've got incredible life skills that are highly translatable. They just need to get the uh, technical skills to make the- make Amen it. to that. I mean, we talked to Rob Newsom, who's the, the, now the VP of strategy for the Philadelphia 76ers. Talk about a shift and a pivot. Good for him. These guys are fantastic and we should do more to help these guys transition and pivot. All right, Larry, let's finish up here. Uh, we love to ask this question. What's, your, what's a, a book you're reading uh, right now that you'd love to share with uh, our listeners? So I'm, I'm a World War II buff, and I just love uh, learning more about that whole, it was such an important aspect of our history. I'm reading a book called The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson. And it's really, it, he depicts the saga of Winston Churchill, his family, and the Blitz, you know, when, when Germany was about to go in and, and take out London and the, and the British Empire. And how did Churchill do that? How did he get the United States involved at the right time? Anyway, it's a fascinating book. Now, Eric Larson, I think he wrote Devil in the White City too, and a couple others. Um, he typically runs a very historical thing with some kind of terrible murder or something that happens in real life. It's, fun, are, it's a fun read. Yeah. It's a fun read. You can't put the book down because it's just one thing after another. It's just so You're going to love this. So I listened to that. I've listened to a couple of his books. And uh, they're always a little, they make you think they're a little off-putting. Um, fascinating books, fascinating aspects of history that are forgotten, um, but they're always a little off-putting on some of the side. And so, but they're, they're great books. I downloaded this business book. I don't know which one it was. And I was listening to these books on, on through Audible. And uh, the business book was read by the same narrator who read these Eric Larson books. And I couldn't read it because it creaked me out too much. <laughs> so I had to put the, the business book down and actually the audio book down and just pick up the regular book because the guy <laughs> was reading it. I couldn't make the, the disconnection between what he read over here and what this business principle was. Uh, so. Okay. <laughs> Um, good, good. I love that. I love World War II. That's a good one. I haven't read it. I'm going to check that out. What's your favorite book? So I'm, I'm going to violate the, the laws here. I've got two books that I just have to, I just love. So one is Miracle on the 17th Green by James Patterson. It's a short read, really small book. I got a copy I'll give you when, when you leave. Uh, but it's an amazing book about an advertising executive that has this dream. He always wanted to play professional golf and he competes for the senior PGA tournament wins. <laughs> he gets in and he wins uh, a, a, a match. And it's just, it's just this, again, a great story about pivoting. And it's just an uplifting success story of a guy who thinks he's washed up in one career, starts something, his dream, he pursues his dream. 
and it's just a fun fun read. The second book is more uh, serious and more technical, uh, more technical in that it's a business. Um, some business advice called Who Moved My Cheese by Spencer Johnson. It is a must read for all of you who are listening to this podcast because it's about, you know, pivoting. We've talked a lot about that already, but um, it's a wonderful quick read illustration of what happens when you sit and and stagnate and, and are frustrated because the world is moving around you and you're not moving. You have to read it. You have to apply it to your life. You know, I, I, I've i read that book and- uh, I think it was one of my first um, like pop business culture yeah. books that I so read. So I read that book and I put it off to the side. Was, was and it 98, 90, yeah. went right around there? Maybe, maybe, but there's a lot more, yeah. you know, more robust business books out there. Sure. <laughs> well, wait, sure. so, so I'm, I'm yeah. reading Sports Illustrated, my Sports Illustrated come in the mail and I'm on the back porch or sitting by the pool and I'm flipping through and I'm reading about it. And it was when LeBron had won his first championship in Miami and they had interviewed him and he credited who moved my cheese for helping him understand how he needed to pivot so that he could finally win a championship. <laughs> and I was like, how about that? Athletes even carrying it together. But it's also, you know, hate LeBron all you want, but here's a guy that, that knows that he has to do something different to win and he went out and did it. That's good. All right, any daily rituals that you do? So I'm, I'm just gonna give you the, the quick uh, sketch. I'm very lucky and blessed to be retired and, and we've, uh, we had a plan. We, we achieved that plan and now we're executing the plan. But uh, so I start my day, our faith is pretty strong, uh, important to us in our life. So we start the day with, uh, in scripture. Uh, we do a boot camp style workout uh, almost every day with a class. Uh, we try to eat healthy, we call friends, we call family. Uh, we get the right amount of sleep. I'm also serving uh, as the president of the board of the San Diego Master Corral. So I do, uh, I do some nonprofit work uh, in town and I wanna give back to the community. Do you want to sing anything worse right now? I am. A, I'm not a singer. <laughs> I'm a board leader. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll leave it at that. You know, consistently, consistently from all of our guests, up early. Up early. Yep. Uh, any personal goals uh, that you do or you want to try and achieve, th at least through, through the summer? Yeah. So, so uh, I'm transitioning uh, from the vice president of the board of the San Diego Master Corral to the president of the board. And I have a, a very clear vision of what I want to do in terms of getting that board, the right people in the right jobs, get the board to be functioning more uh, prolifically and get it uh, uh, organized to do a better work for the Master Corral. So I'm very determined to turn that ship. And already we're starting to see fruit from that work. So, yeah. So Where can we find out more about it? Go to San Diego SDMasterCrowd.org and you can learn more about the organization and click the donate button. Yes. <laughs> hey, while you're talking, I don't know that you know this story, but you introduced Kyle and I. You were the head of the Business Leaders Breakfast yes. at Rock Church. And uh, when I first started, I showed up to my very first one. There was only one chair left. And I ended up sitting next to Kyle. And we didn't know each other. I didn't know what he did even. We had breakfast. He said he was in marketing. He ran this nonprofit. Uh, I think he said he was in the military, but he didn't tell me that he was special forces or a Navy SEAL or anything. And so uh, he finds me on LinkedIn and says, hey, you wanna grab coffee? So we met for coffee in North Park and uh, had coffee and he walks me through some of this presentation stuff he's doing. I ask him more about his his life. You know, he's getting ready to retire from the Navy. What are you in the Navy? I'm a Navy SEAL. And we just kind of took it from there. And then we had, you know, we grabbed breakfast another couple of weeks later and uh, had we never gone to the breakfast, we would have never met. So, yeah. so technically everything is thanks to you, big yes. guy. <laughs> I'm here awesome. because of you. That's I know Kyle. Kyle through you, so that's really... <laughs> 
Oh, well, it's been been a great relationship. I love you guys and you guys are doing amazing work and you're not, talk about living living the word. In other words, you're you're both high integrity guys. You follow through on your promise. You say you're going to do something, you do it. Um, It's just a pleasure to work with you guys and to know you. And so it's been fun to to do this. But more importantly, I, I look forward to our continued friendship. Wonderful. I'm not going to say anything after that. That was perfect. <laughs> Tell you. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Larry McIntosh, for your time today. We're coming to you live from his studio here today. Uh, my big takeaway is big ideas and mobilize an organization and energize a culture. Powerful stuff. Uh, if you want to find out more about what Kyle and I do, visit cultureforce.team on the internet. And uh, we're grateful that you listened today. Thank you for uh, your work, Kyle, with One More Wave. Check them out at onemorewave.com. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, guys. Pleasure.